Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about something that's maybe not so virtual, but is in fact very legal. On your screen right now is a screenshot from CNN Politics entitled, House Expected to Pass Bill on Washington, D.C. statehood. If you haven't been following this story, Congress recently held some hearings about whether or not to pass a bill, House Bill 51, not at all unintentionally, I am sure, to make Washington, D.C., the District of Columbia, a state. If you don't know United States politics, the Constitution of the United States says that the District of Columbia, the seat of government, shall not be a state. It doesn't have representatives in the House. It doesn't have senators in the Senate. It is, in fact, supposed to be represented by the entirety of Congress. But I think there are a lot of people out there that are rightly not terribly enthused about that prospect and have long wanted to be a state. So House Bill 51 comes in and says, pretty simply, we're going to look at other language in this bill, subject to the provisions of this act upon the issuance of the proclamation required by Section 103A, the state of Washington, Douglas Commonwealth, a new name for the area, is to be declared a state of the United States and admitted into the union on an equal footing with the other states in all respects, whatever. And as you can probably imagine, there's fairly good arguments for this. On Statehood DC, the website, it says, for more than 200 years, the residents of Washington DC have been subjected to systemic inequality and denied the full rights of citizenship that the residents of states enjoy, including voting representation in Congress. It is time to right a great historic wrong. The District of Columbia is the only political and geographical entity within the United States of America whose citizens bear the responsibilities of citizenship, including taxation and selective service registration without sharing in the full rights and privileges of that citizenship. Now, there are, of course, other U.S. citizens, especially expatriates abroad that have to pay taxes to the United States and other folks that don't really have a great deal of representation as well. But even in those kind of outlier cases, the residents of Washington, D.C., present an important point. As time puts it, the frustration is tangible. In 2016, 86% of DC voters approved a non-binding referendum to become the 51st state, which until 2017 also happened to be the name of a great dive bar over by George Washington University's campus. Our default license plates in Washington, DC literally carry the message, end taxation without representation. Now on its face, a bill like this that says, Congress will make this area, state of Washington, Douglas Commonwealth, a new state would appear to pass constitutional muster in the broadest possible terms. Under Article 4, Section 3, new states may be admitted to the Congress into this union, but no new states shall be formed or erected within the jurisdiction of any other state. Washington, D.C. is not within the area of any other state at present. We'll talk about that. Nor any state be formed by the junction of two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of the states concerned as well as of the Congress. Now, that wouldn't appear to be an issue. So the House of Representatives, the Senate, the Congress in general would appear to have a way to make the state of Washington Douglas Commonwealth a reality. But on Twitter, on social media, on Facebook, wherever you might find yourself, you've probably heard the countervailing argument. And it is also a good one, which says that, hey, Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution gives Congress specific powers over this. The Congress shall have power to do what? Well, we have to scroll all the way down here to Clause 17 to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district not exceeding 10 miles square, so 100 miles in area, as may by session of particular states and the acceptance of Congress become the seat of the government of the United States. 
and to exercise like authority over other places like forts, magazines, arsenals, dockyards, and things that aren't as pertinent to this particular conversation. So Congress is to have this power to exercise exclusive legislation over a district that will be the seat of government of the United States, a district that was formed quite a long time ago. And so there are arguments to be had. And believe me, if this bill were to pass and Washington, D.C. were to become Washington Douglas Commonwealth, it would be challenged by various interests in the United States. We'll talk about why in just a second. It would likely find itself in front of the Supreme Court. And one of the arguments to be made will be that Congress got this land to govern as the exclusive legislator over the seat of government in the United States. And no matter how you frame it, and we'll see that they were very smart in framing this particular bill, this shouldn't be allowed. To that, there are a couple of responses. One of which is, this is not a mandate. The Congress shall have power to exercise legislation over a district is not a requirement. There's a whole list of laws here. These are effectively the rights of Congress. A lot of the times you'll hear the Constitution described as granting rights to the citizenry. That's really not how the American Constitution works. Instead, it provides all rights to the people except for the stuff that it gives specifically as positive rights to various branches of the government. So when you see Congress shall make no law about X, Y, or Z in the Bill of Rights, that was intended to just be underlining of the fact that what is not put forth in the Constitution is not a power that Congress shall have. But it doesn't mean that they have to do these kinds of things. The Congress shall have power, for instance, to declare war is not a mandate that Congress declare war. They don't have to declare a war every day. Sometimes it feels like they do. They don't have to. These are the powers that they have. They have the power to exercise legislation over a district that will be where the seat of government is. And in fact, that's pretty self-evident if you look at the history of the country, because when the Constitution was ratified, when it was passed, the Capitol wasn't the Capitol. Here in Wikipedia, the United States Capitol, the United States Congress was established upon ratification of the United States Constitution and formally began on March 4th, 1789. New York City remained home to Congress until July 1790 when the Residence Act was passed to pave the way for a permanent capital. The decision of where to locate the capital was contentious, but Alexander Hamilton helped broker a compromise in which the federal government would take on the war debt incurred during the American Revolutionary War, the war debt of the states, in exchange for support from northern states for locating the capital along the Potomac River. In essence, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton, in the room where it happened, uh, if you know the song, got together and Thomas Jefferson gave him all the state debts in order to make the federal bank and federal government more powerful. And he gave Thomas Jefferson the capital in the quote unquote South along the banks of the Potomac in what is now Washington, D.C. As part of the legislation, Philadelphia was chosen as a temporary capital for 10 years until December 1800, until the nation's capital in Washington, D.C. would be ready. And in fact, you can go and you can look at the Residence Act in various places of this remarkable thing called the Internet, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled that a district of territory not exceeding 10 miles square to be located as hereafter directed on the River Potomac at some place between the mouths of the Eastern Branch and Conagocheg, B, and the same is hereby accepted for the permanent seat of the government of the United States. This wasn't until 1790, and it wasn't until 1791 that you actually get President Washington proclaiming that this is about to happen. Whereas Maryland passed an act to cede to Congress, a district of 10 miles square in this state for the seat of government of the United States, and it was tied to which the Congress might fix upon and accept for the seat of government of the United States, and in which Virginia did the same thing. And we're going to not talk about Virginia as much, 
because Virginia isn't going to come up and we'll talk about why. Pursuant to the tenor and effect of the eighth section of the first article of the Constitution of Government of the United States, Clause 17, as we just looked at, Maryland and Virginia give up their land. The United States takes it and Washington, D.C. becomes Washington, D.C. as we know it in 1800. That wasn't in violation of the Constitution. That wasn't in violation of some congressional code of ethics. It took a while to get started, but it wasn't a mandate. So when we're talking about this as a constitutional issue, it's important to make that distinction. It doesn't mean, by the way, that I think this will ultimately pass constitutional muster, not only because I think that there are arguments that can be had against it that we'll discuss, but also because it is impossible to judge exactly what the Supreme Court of the United States would do on such a political question as this. But it's worth noting that there are arguments against what you might see on Twitter or Facebook that says this is just blatantly unconstitutional, and we will see why that isn't the case in just a second. Equally problematic, however, is the other understanding of what's happening here. Here's a tweet from Aaron Rupar. I don't think the founding fathers had any intentions regarding South Dakota either, in which he's responding to a senator that said the founding fathers never intended for Washington, D.C. to be a state. And in fact, that's a very fair explanation of what's happening here. The founding fathers definitely didn't want the District of Columbia or whatever it would have been called, the seat of government, to be a state, while at the same time, they had provided for the mechanisms on how to admit new states for Congress. So this is a bit of an unfair kind of attempt at a gotcha. The founding fathers in the Constitution 100% provided for how to admit new states at the same time that they provided for a completely separate mechanism for where the seat of government was to be. And this is evident writ large in the Federalist Papers, those papers that discuss how the Constitution was intended, right? And looking at the clause that we just looked at, I think it's James Madison in this particular Federalist number 43, says the following. The indispensable necessity of complete authority at the seat of government carries its own evidence with it. So starting point, we understand that there needs to be a total authority in a seat of government. There needs to be a place where government is located. Without it, not only the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted with impunity, but a dependence of the members of the general government on the state comprehending the seat of government for protection in the exercise of their duty might bring on the national councils an imputation of all or influence equally dishonorable to the government and dissatisfactory to the other members. There might be read as states. Now, this is old-timey language. The Federalist Papers are fun to read if you're ever interested, but they can also be a little bit of a slog. So what are they trying to say in this particular paper, our founding fathers and James Madison in particular? So we want to make a district that's separate from the states. If we don't do that, the public authority might be insulted and its proceedings interrupted. If it is under the ambit of another state government, we want it to be separate. But a dependence of the members of the general government on the state comprehending the seat of the government. If we have to be beholden to Governor Cuomo or Governor Whitmer or Government Noem or whoever you want to talk to as the governor or the legislature of the state where your capital is located, that will be a problem because they will have to be beholden to them, the federal government will, to a state in some capacity. And we want to avoid that. It also might bring on national councils an imputation of awe or influence of the state in question equally dishonorable to the government, both the federal government and the other state governments, and dissatisfactory to the other members of what is still being framed here as the Confederacy. This consideration has the more weight as the gradual accumulation of public improvements at the stationary residence of the government would be both too great a public pledge to be left in the hands of a single state 
and would create so many obstacles to a removal of the government as still further to abridge its necessary independence. We're going to be building stuff there. There's going to be a Supreme Court. As it turns out, there's going to be a bunch of monuments. There's going to be a tourism attraction to this location. And the people that run the federal government are going to live there. So we want to be very careful about what this thing is, says the founders. The extent of this federal district is sufficiently circumscribed to satisfy every jealousy of an opposite nature. And as it is to be appropriated to this use with the consent of the state ceding it, as the state will no doubt provide in the compact for the rights and the consent of the citizens inhabiting it, as the inhabitants will find sufficient inducements of interest to become willing parties to the session, as they will have had their voice in the election of the government, which is to exercise authority over them as a municipal legislature for local purposes derived from their own suffrages will, of course, be allowed them. Said another way, he thinks there's no problem here because the citizens of Maryland and the citizens of Virginia will have signed off on this. Those that find themselves in the District of Columbia will be represented properly. And no, you don't have to agree with any of this. But it doesn't make the argument here that the Founding Fathers didn't contemplate this concept any more correct. It's a silly argument to make, and it's worthwhile to note that the Founding Fathers absolutely intended for the district to be separate from the states entirely to not make the District of Columbia, the seat of the federal government, beholden to the state in which it is located and subject to their whims and mercies. So that's going to be a continuing kind of discussion to be had. Now, it's also worth noting that the District of Columbia, as we know today, has not always been the same. In fact, you can see, and they've got this nice picture here on Wikipedia, that what it is today was not always the case. The land was originally ceded to the federal government by Virginia and Maryland in 1790, but after moving through various stages of federal and state approval, the Virginia portion was returned to Virginia in March of 1847. So you can see it here, right here. You can see Alexandria County. You can see Washington County here in this lovely picture. And then Virginia is going to take it back in 1846. It's going to be retroceded back to Virginia, and it's going to only be in Maryland through right now, which I think leaves it at 60 some odd miles of real estate. The Maryland portion still constitutes the District of Columbia today, but some have proposed retroceding it in part or in whole to address issues related to the voting rights of residents of the District of Columbia, that Maryland could effectively, potentially, take it back, which is what gets us to the really interesting part of this proposed bill and why I think it likely survives constitutional muster. Right? We've talked about the fact that Congress has provided for this district. We've talked about the fact that Congress has the exclusive rights over this district, which itself presents a kind of problem for opponents of this kind of legislation that says, all right, if I have exclusive control over something, that includes the control of giving it away. It doesn't exactly match with what the founding fathers intended, but if it is exclusive, then that's what exclusive means. So that's a starting point. But the better argument has been done by these bills drafters. So they go and they say, all right, we're going to make a state out of this thing. What is this state going to be? And we have to scroll down a little bit here. It is going to be the locations that aren't the federal government. So we're going to have election of senators. We're going to have a single representative. And then by the time we actually are establishing what this thing is, it is the state shall consist of all the territory of the District of Columbia as of the enactment of this act, subject to exclusion for what they are calling the capital which will remain the seat of government of the United States. Subject to subsection C, upon the admission of the state of the union, the capital shall consist of the property described in subsection B and shall include the federal monuments, the White House, the Capitol building, the United States Supreme Court building, and the federal executive, legislative, and judicial office buildings. So what they have done 
is they have taken this prescription in the constitution said, hey, not exceeding 10 miles doesn't say how big the thing has to be. It doesn't have to be 100 miles large, even though that's where it started out. Obviously, it doesn't have to be 100 miles large because we already have a version that isn't 100 miles large. We're going to shrink it even further until it's at this point where you only have a federal district of Washington under congressional control that is about this big, while the Douglas Commonwealth is a lot bigger. In other words, the District of Columbia, as we know it today, won't exist, but a federal district that would appear to comport with the Article I either requirements, if you're so inclined to read the Constitution that way, or just power of Congress in general, is still going to survive in some fashion. Now, if you're more inclined to believe the founders' arguments about these kinds of things, you'll note that this kind of look presents an equal problem to the one that they were trying to avoid, which is that clearly the federal district of Washington and the couple hundred of people that are going to live in it are going to be beholden to the Douglas Commonwealth for protection and for everything else. So that's one problem that you might have with it philosophically, but certainly the representation argument is a considerable one. The other argument to be had is, okay, if these folks all want to have representation in the House of Representatives, want to be represented by a state, then maybe they should be retroceded back to the state of Maryland, much like this area was retroceded back to the Commonwealth of Virginia. And there isn't a great argument against that other than the fact that they don't want to, right? This NPR article pretty much highlights what I've just said. Washington Mayor Muriel Bowser countered that the dispute over the constitutionality of statehood is a bad faith argument. Article 1 of the Constitution is not an obstacle, she said. As H.R. 51 makes clear, a federal district will remain for the federal government, its buildings and its workings, and the rest of the area where people live will become the 51st state. So they are trying to address the complaints that people would have about it. They're trying to pre-address the complaints that would undoubtedly appear in the Supreme Court of the United States. But even then, it's not a slam dunk gimme argument for the drafters of this bill or for Congress in general. And why is that? Well, if we go and we look at what we were talking about before, about the proclamations that were made, Maryland gave this land for the seat of the government of the United States. They did it so that Congress might fix upon and accept for the seat of government in the United States. They gave a donation to the federal government for a specific purpose. And when you start talking about that, you start to get into an area of law that says, well, what happens if the party that received that donation no longer uses it for that purpose? Now, the Constitution, again, the argument against it is, hey, they have exclusive jurisdiction. So they have exclusive jurisdiction. They can get rid of it. But it's not always so easy. I'm going to pull up a very current case here from 1946, SRA Inc. versus Minnesota, in which the U.S. Supreme Court tried to grapple with this exact same issue. In the syllabus, it's described as follows. Real estate, which has been acquired by the United States for public purposes with the consent of a state and over which the United States had exercised exclusive legislative jurisdiction pursuant to the clause we're concerned about, 1817, was sold to a private party under a contract of sale, giving the purchaser possession, but retaining legal title in the United States until payment of the balance of the purchase price is made in installments. The contract contained no express provision regarding sovereignty in the United States. There was no express retrocession by Congress to the state. And the original act of session contained no requirement for return of sovereignty to the state when the property was no longer used for federal purposes. While much of the purchase price was still not due and unpaid, the state decided to levy taxes on the property subject to fee title remaining in the United States. Don't want to step on the federal government's toes. 
Under the state laws construed by the Supreme Court of the state, the equitable interest alone could be sold for taxes, leaving the fee of the United States in its position of priority over any interest which might be transferred by the tax sale. Long story short, the United States got some stuff under Clause 17, tried to sell it after it was granted to it for that purpose. Once it sold it, the state said, "Uh uh-uh, we're going to tax that. And the Supreme Court comes in and says, yeah, I think it probably went back to the state automatically. A question as to the power of the Minnesota to tax realty within the boundaries of that state when the legal title remains in the United States is presented by this writ of certiori. The state ceded jurisdiction over the realty in accordance with the exclusive legislation clause of the United States Constitution, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 17. The realty in question was conveyed to the United States in 1867 as a site for a building to house a post office, a customs office, and offices for various departments and agencies of the United States. It was purchased on public sale and improved by petitioner. There was no requirement in the act of cessation for return of sovereignty to the state when the ceded territory was no longer used for federal purposes. In the absence of some such provisions, a transfer of property held by the United States under state sessions pursuant to Clause 17 of the Constitution would leave numerous isolated islands of federal jurisdiction unless the unrestricted transfer of the property to private hands is thought without more to revest sovereignty in the states. As the purpose of Clause 17 was to give control over the sites of governmental operations to the United States, when such control was deemed essential for federal activities, it would seem that the sovereignty of the United States would end with the reason for its existence and the disposition of the property. We shall treat this case as though the government's unrestricted transfer of property to non-federal hands is a relinquishment of the exclusive legislative power. Now, this is not a direct hit for what we're talking about with respect to DC statehood, but it is the kind of thing you are likely to see brought up by challengers. If Maryland gave the land and it was for the purpose of creating a district where the federal government will sit, you can't, in most circumstances in contract, and federal constitutional law is not most circumstances, just do something else with it and not expect the original donor to have some interest. Now you might also say, Rick, okay, That might be the case, but won't Maryland just say, sure? This is obviously a political question. One of the reasons that a number of people want to see D.C. become a state is for those two senators, and who can blame them? Politics is politics. The Democrats want to push for it for those two senators. The Republicans want to push against it. Because of those two senators, fair is fair and love war and politics. But Maryland does have a 55% lean Democrat, 31% Republican. What they also have, however is a budget. And what we are talking about is a city that has a lot of government workers, a lot of white collar incomes, and a lot of potential tax and revenue sources. So it wouldn't surprise me if something came up under SRA, if it was challenged and the Supreme Court ultimately held that Maryland got the final say, that Maryland tried to extract its plow into flesh or just said, nope, we'll take them back and we'll tax them because we want that tax money that's useful to what we're doing. Now, of course, with that tax money becomes liabilities, becomes policing requirements and everything else. Maryland might say, no, it's fine. You come be your own state. We'd love to have the two senators. It's all good. We don't know how that would actually operate, but it is a question that a lot of people are ignoring because it's not an easy question to answer. The other question is, can this thing even pass? Right? We go back to the CNN headline. It's about the House being expected to pass the bill. But if you look in NPR and anywhere else you want to look at this question, right now, quoting the article, the Senate has a big brick wall in front of it called the filibuster that House bills are passing and slamming right into. 
Eliminating the filibuster is the key to unlocking the door to any progress at all. It doesn't mean you're guaranteed to make progress. You still need to find 50 votes for the issues that you want to get done. But if the filibuster exists, there's no chance at all. If you aren't familiar with the filibuster, the Senate is one of the most arcane, mysterious, and just plain weird deciding bodies really operating, I think, anywhere in the world. I brought up a Brookings education website here that says, what is the Senate filibuster? What would it take to eliminate it? The Senate cloture rule, you'll see the word cloture referred to and filibuster in equal measure, requires 60 members to end debate on most topics and move to a vote. And that could pose a steep barrier to any incoming president's policy agenda. Said another way, the Senate argues about these things. Should we pass this? Should we not pass this? Should we do this? Should we amend this? Unless you can get 60 senators to agree to stop talking, there is never a vote taken on whether to approve the bill or not. So in essence, even though you need 51 votes or 50 votes plus the vice president in the case of the Democrats in the currently deadlocked 50-50 Senate, you can't get to that point if there aren't 60 senators, 10 Republicans in reality, that are willing to stop the debate and go on with the vote. So that presents a roadblock to anything that's remotely contentious. Now, the Brookings Institute here points out the filibuster, not a part of the founder's original vision of the Senate. So that could be an argument on the Senate floor when talking about the founder's original vision of the District of Columbia versus the founder's not original vision of the filibuster. It was essentially an accident of history, as this headline puts forth. And opponents simply filibuster the motion to ban the filibuster for now a very long period of time in American history. The Brookings Institute can't quite tell exactly how much cloture has caused a problem, how much the filibuster has been used, but it certainly appears to be being used more and more often. Now, how does the Senate get around the filibuster right now? Senators have two options when they seek to vote on a measure or motion. Most often, the majority leader or another senator seeks unanimous consent, asking if any of the 100 senators objects to ending debate and moving to a vote. If nobody objects, then the Senate proceeds. If the majority leader can't secure the consent of all 100 senators, if one person really says, no, I'm not approving the end of this discussion, the leader typically files what is called a cloture motion, which then requires those 60 votes to adopt. And if fewer than 60 senators, a supermajority of the chamber, support the cloture, that's when we say that a measure has been filibustered. We're not really talking about Mr. Smith goes to Washington and goes and reads Harry Potter in front of the entire Senate. This is just a simple kind of procedural mechanism when we talk about filibuster now. Not, not always, but mostly. Now, how would eliminating the filibuster actually work? Well, there's two primary ways the Brookings Institute identifies here. The most straightforward way would be to formally change the text of Senate Rule 22, the cloture rule that requires those 60 votes. Here's the catch. Ending debate on a resolution to change the Senate's current rules actually requires more senators, two-thirds of the members present in voting. So that seems harder to do than to just get rid of cloture that way. Importantly, the approach to curtailing the filibuster colloquial, colloquially known as the nuclear option and more formally known as reform by ruling can, in certain circumstances, be employed with support from only a simple majority of senators. So if you're watching CNN or Fox or Vox or wherever you're watching the news and you hear talk of the nuclear option to get rid of the filibuster, this is what they are talking about. In 2013 and 2017, the majority leader used two non-debatable motions to bring up relevant nominations and then raised a point of order that the vote on cloture should be by majority vote. The presiding officer ruled against the point of order because the Senate rule number 22 says you're wrong, but then the Senate could overturn on appeal, which only required a majority in support. Like I said, the Senate, mysterious, arcane, weird, 
Basically, they have a rule that says it's required to have 60 votes, but the actual mechanism to amend that rule in practicality, if not in ethics, is only 50 or 51, depending on how you're counting this. And so you could always exercise the nuclear option if you're a senator and say, nope, I get you parliamentarian. I understand how you're that reading that rule. Now the precedent is set that this is only going to require a majority to end the debate. In sum, as this article points out, by following the right steps in a particular parliamentary circumstance, a simple majority of senators can establish a new interpretation of a Senate rule. When we're talking about statehood, 60 is actually magically 50 or 50 plus one. And that can and probably, in my opinion, will happen because this is the kind of thing we are seeing in politics in the United States right now, a continued escalation in a failure of decorum. Uh, Whether or not you like that probably depends on whether or not you like the substance of any given bill or nomination in play. But I do think there is a chance that the filibuster in the Senate will end. And unfortunately for folks like me, what that predominantly means is that the pendulum swing on either side, right or left, red or blue, is going to become more drastic. That when the Democrats control Congress, they're going to do more drastic things because they don't have to hit some level of bipartisanship. And the same goes, of course, for the Republicans who are going to counter these kinds of things whenever they have control of Congress back again. The final thing I want to leave you with is kind of an interesting point on all of this is that in prior years, we've amended the Constitution to provide the District of Columbia with additional rights. The 23rd Amendment to the Constitution provides as follows. The district constituting the seat of government in the United States shall appoint in such manner as the Congress may direct a number of electors of president and vice president equal to the whole number of senators and representatives in Congress to which the district would be entitled if it were a state, but in no event more than the least populous state. That's what gives DC its three votes in the electoral college. The problem is, of course, that when you actually look at what we're talking about right now, what we're talking about with respect to what is being proposed in this bill, only this will be the district for the federal seat of government. So this act not only affords these two senators and one representative, but these three electors don't go anywhere. So this entire area winds up having six electors. And I think without a constitutional amendment, you create a potentially large problem, whereas the rest of the country doesn't have quite the same representation as this, the federal government, and could present its own philosophical quandaries. So I know you get to the end of these videos and you say, well, Rick, what do you think of all this? As I've said, I think retrocession is probably the most politically middle ground version of this. Hey, if you want representation, go back to Maryland. 100%, I'm all for it. But I think the drafters of the bill, HR 51, have done some smart things to avoid the most obvious constitutional questions. And I don't love if they have to get rid of the filibuster in the Senate, but I think that they might just do it. So we'll see what happens. But I wanted to talk to you all about this because it's a very interesting set of circumstances. And certainly, if the filibuster winds up going away, in pursuit of this particular bill, you might see significant ramifications for that lack of filibuster in future bills during this administration and the next and the next and the next. This has been Virtual Legality for Day. If you enjoy talking about, well, not usually Washington, D.C. statehood, but the business and law of video games, movies, music, television, and pop culture, 
please consider supporting the channel and the conversations we have here. We've got a Patreon, we've got Streamlabs, we've got shirts and mugs just below this video. And if none of those appeal to you, please just consider subscribing, ringing the bell, telling folks that we are here because every little bit helps. We're growing the channel. I'm very happy with the growth of the channel and everything that everybody has done to help make this happen here in virtual reality. But please just tell folks that we're having these conversations because I really, really do appreciate it. And it really, really does help. If you saw this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it as a podcast, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.